This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation-funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred-rights.org, that's W-R-I-T-E-S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Dialogue between groups, whether it be world leaders, parents and leaders of a school district, or interfaith leadership groups, has been a fraught topic throughout human history. Is there balance and equity in such dialogue? Do all parties feel heard, seen, and respected? Do problems get glossed over or minimized? These concerns of communication are present in all human dialogue, and studying dialogue between religious groups is a topic of academic interest for Dr. Alana Vincent. Dr. Alana Vincent is professor of Jewish philosophy, religion, and imagination at the University of Chester. She works on post-Holocaust Jewish thought, Jewish-Christian dialogue, and popular culture, primarily in the fields of science fiction and fantasy. In this conversation, we discuss her article, Convergence and Asymmetry, Observations on the Current State of Jewish-Christian Dialogue. We also discuss the work of sacred rites, but also how teachers across all levels of education can do a better job of ensuring the students in our classrooms right now can be a part of a more equal future when it comes to the dialogue and relationships of religious groups. Dr. Vincent can be found on Twitter at Prof A-M-V, and I'm on Twitter at Classical underscore Ideas. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much for listening. Let's get into some of your specific scholarship within your area of work on Jewish-Christian dialogues. How Whenever I was preparing for this conversation, I was taking a, pe- a peek at uh, some of your work, and you sent me an article called Convergence and Asymmetry, Observations on the Current State of Jewish-Christian Dialogue, which argues that there's like this asymmetric power relationship um, embedded into the theory and practice of Jewish-Christian, Jewish-Christian dialogue in which Christian institutions have been insufficiently attentive to the issue of Jewish self-understanding. And... I found this to be really interesting um, because it, it very specifically talks about the insufficient attention. Um, and I really liked that. And I've never talked about this before uh, on the show. And so it seems like one of the article's goals is to question the reality of convergence between the positive developments between the two traditions and highlighting weaknesses and inconsistencies arising from assumptions but you also talk about how your goal is to open a dialogue about these weaknesses to maybe strengthen them in the future, which I really like. And I would love if you could you know, describe to me what you were noticing when you kind of like honed in on your areas of interest in these areas. Uh, what were you were seeing as some of the major trends that you were observing in official documentation that caused you to notice this insufficient attention, as you call it? 
So I didn't actually start thinking about this from the documents. Mm-hmm. I started thinking about this from my position as a dialogue practitioner. Um, you know, as the local person who, or not local, but the person that people know does Jewish stuff, and so we can invite you to talk about Jewish stuff in a dialogue-ish kind of context. Mm-hmm. And from my work in institutions like the Swedish Theological Institute, which has dialogue as its core mission. Actually, let me start with the Swedish Theological Institute because they have sure. a very particular approach to dialogue, um, which is following the work of Christer Stendhal, who, the late Christer Stendhal, who was a scholar and a bishop in the Church of Sweden, who was instrumental in the early stages of post-Holocaust Jewish-Christian dialogue. And Stendhal formulated a number of basic principles for how to do dialogue well and productively. Things like cultivate holy envy, look for the thing in another tradition that you can admire. Um, But he also, well, Stendhal and people working in the tradition of Christer Stendhal also think of dialogue as a level playing field. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea is when we're doing dialogue, we should come to it with openness and honesty and you come to the dialogue table with the expectation, yes, that you will get something from your dialogue partner, at least in terms of improved mutual understanding and maybe even something that will enrich your own self-understanding and faith. But you also come to the dialogue table with the expectation that you are going to give something up. And the thing that you may be asked to give up may be something that is very dear to you. You know, it may be some critical part of your religious self-understanding. And for dialogue to be effective, you have to be open to that process. Mm -hmm. So these, these are not rules that are articulated in the church documents that I ended up reviewing, but they are rules that tend to govern academic and community-based dialogue events. What I noticed over many, many years of doing this sort of dialogue work is that in practice, the the playing field of the dialogue table isn't level. Mm-hmm. Because in practice, 
Christian self-understanding tends to be extremely flexible. Mm -hmm. The historical relationship between Judaism and Christianity has meant that actually a great deal of Jewish worldview has already been absorbed into Christian thinking. The opposite isn't true. Jewish attitudes towards Christian theology tend to be, no, we don't do that because not doing that is, it's not the entire thing that makes us Jewish, but it's kind of an important part Mm -hmm. of what makes Jews Jewish. What happens very often in practice in Jewish-Christian dialogue is a conversation that goes something like this. I, as a Christian, understand that we have had a historically problematic relationship with the Jewish people. We have done some really bad stuff to Mm y'all. And I am so sorry about that. And I want to make it better. Let's let's talk about how I can make this better by, hmm, what can I do to make this better? Well, let me start by saying that I'm not going to try to convert you anymore. Okay. And we say, yes, thank you very much. That's, that's a good step. Actually, no, we'll start with, I'm not going to try to kill you anymore. Thank you very much. And maybe we'll not try to convert you anymore. Thank you very much. And, you know, I, I, will, I will revise my historical understanding. I now realize that you know, when, when I understand that Jesus has come to save the entire world, it doesn't mean that that's going to happen in the way I think it's going to happen. So I'm going to think really hard mm-hmm. about how Jesus is going to save you without me converting you. In, in the rules of the dialogue table is a level playing field, the appropriate response is, yeah, thank you very much. Um, we hope that you reach a satisfactory conclusion on that at some point. Um, and then it goes back. But while I'm thinking about the ways in which it's possible for Jesus to still save you without me converting you. Since this is a level playing field and we're both giving something up, um, I I, I think it's only fair that you think about the possibility that Jesus will eventually save you. And I'm not gonna say that you should convert, but if you acknowledge that Jesus will eventually save you, then, you know, that will really shift the kind of conversation we're having here, right? Yeah. I, look, that is a very um, almost parodic gloss of conversations that happen a lot more politely and with a lot more words. Mm-hmm. And very often, most of the time, a lot of those words are 
an explicit denial that that last point is ever going to be part of the conversation. And yet the idea that we can sit here and talk to each other about our beliefs and be open to the idea of there being some grain of truth on both sides. Um, the only thing that's really in contestation there is Jesus. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right? I, and it is a one-way conversation. Mm-hmm. And Jews are not asking our Christian dialogue partners to remain open to the possibility that Jesus has absolutely no salvific relevance for the world whatsoever. Right? The Jewish request in in all of this dialogue process is more or less, could you just leave us alone? Acknowledge that Judaism is whatever formulation you need to feel good about leaving us alone. Judaism is salvifically relevant in its own right. Judaism is a valid religious position. Um, The God of Israel, who Christians recognize as their God, has a separate arrangement with the Jews. I, it's, I'm not trying to be really picky here, and I don't think most Jews involved in dialogue are inclined to be picky about the exact theological formulation, but I do have to start to wonder, eventually, after many decades of this dialogue, why we're still having conversations about how good it is that Christians recognize that Judaism is a complete and valid religion in its own right, and the subject of um, Jesus is still there. Uh Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. So, because, however, when you're doing dialogue in, I don't want to say official capacity, because there there are layers um, of dialogue activity. And when we say official dialogue, we usually mean leap church leaders and representatives of a whatever the relevant um, Jewish governing body of an area are sitting down together and having a very high level, very official, almost pre-scripted dialogue. Mm -hmm. Below But below that level, there's a lot of stuff that goes on, right? There's everything from a nice coffee and chat morning of 
everyone from a local area that is of a different religion and willing to talk to people of different religions to academic conferences where we're half talking about dialogue as a historical phenomenon and half performing dialogue as people who are also practitioners. And then there's, you know, there's the middle levels that are maybe, you know, the local priest and local rabbi and local imam walk into a bar kind of scenarios. When you're doing formal dialogue that that has explicitly or implicitly this is a level playing field and we are seeking to come to a progression of mutual understanding rules. The other unspoken rule is, oh, it's, it's kind of the improv rule, right? No denying. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if someone makes a generous sounding claim in that space, you don't say, okay, you say that, but... In that space, you say, okay, right, I'm taking you at your word. But, again, we've been doing this for a few decades. There are certain things that aren't changing. I start to wonder, really, what, what's happening here? What is the actual purpose of this constant performance of we are all going to sit down together and mutually appreciate are diverse religious positions. <laughs> I okay, fine. Maybe maybe all we're actually doing is an enrichment program for the individuals involved. And that's not unimportant. But if we're talking about dialogue as a project or a process, we should be thinking about you know, how this enrichment in the understanding of the actual individuals doing it is leading to some form of social or religious change. So how do we track this? How do we track this? Well, I like an archive. Mm-hmm. I, that, that, that's my major modality of scholarship. And it turns out that I churches like documents mm-hmm. um, and my liking archives and churches liking documents go together very nicely in yes. this situation because churches that have taken an idea um, that they are obligated to some form of post-Holocaust dialogue with the Jewish people in order to reset the relationship that was shown to be kind of irreparably damaged by the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Don't just do this and not tell anything, tell anyone anything about it. They write reports. They write declarations. They write memoranda. Mm -hmm. And they, and they publish these. So I was able to look at the history of church documents on Jewish-Christian dialogue from 
1947 to five minutes ago. Nice. And look, you know, read them through and see what I think might be changing. And the answer is actually not much. Mm-hmm. I there's I that's not nothing. Right. The the dialogue world is always really invested in the revolutionary nature of Nostra Aetate, um, which was a document of the Second Vatican Council. And this, this is a watershed moment, not just for Catholics, but also for Western Protestants, because I guess if the Catholic Church can revise its teaching on Jews, then Protestants have really less than no excuse. Um, and I, the Nostra Aetate was a really important point in Jewish Christian dialogue. It, it did open up the possibility for official level ongoing dialogue between Catholics and Jews in which Catholics were not only not obligated, but explicitly discouraged from seeing conversion as an outcome. It explicitly states that Judaism is a valid religion in its own right. And that's great. Mm -hmm. That was also 50 plus years ago. Mm -hmm. What's changed in 50 years? very, very little. And the most depressing thing I found is the very, very little evidence in any of these official church, you know, pronunciations on dialogue with the Jewish people that dialogue had actually happened. Mm-hmm. I, I know that it was, ha- I know that it's happened, but Nothing is incorporated into the documents. There's almost no point in an official church document that says something like, and we have learned from our Jewish dialogue partners, Mm. this or that or the other. They're, They're just repeated statements of churches theological positions on Judaism their churches talking to themselves about Jews the story that churches are telling themselves about Jews hasn't changed since that you know between 1947 and Nostra Aetate kind of rolling moment when Western Christianity collectively said, okay, um, maybe, maybe preaching that Jews killed Jesus and are eternally condemned, maybe that's a bad thing and we should stop doing that. It was, and they should. Yeah, yeah. They didn't really 
so much need in it additional 80 years of talking to Jewish people to keep affirming that point. Things that aren't moving, that I really would have expected to start being incorporated into these documents. Um, I talk about some of these in the article. Church documents are still talking about a single salvation story from Genesis to Revelation. And they're still talking about the Old Testament as the portion of that salvation story that is shared between Jews and Christians. They're, I, even leaving aside some discomfort over the language of salvation in Jewish thought, because that that's really not recognizable or appropriate language um, in Jewish thought. In 80 years, apparently no church body has noticed that the Hebrew Bible has a completely different narrative structure to the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. I, not just, you know, I, completely different narrative structure. The prophetic books in the Hebrew Bible come in the middle. In the Old Testament, they come at the end. The, if, will you, if we want to stick with the language of, the, of salvation to describe this narrative arc, the narrative arc of the Hebrew Bible salvation story is a circle, right? There's a, moment of good relationship with God and then people are people and they have a falling out with God and bad things happen and then people repent and they return to a good relationship with God. That, that's the narrative arc that we find in the Tanakh. The narrative arc of the Old Testament is a straight line going down. Right, there's a good relationship with God and then people sin and then they sin some more, and then they sin even more, and the prophets yell at them a lot, and eventually they're sent off into exile to be continued. Mm -hmm. And the second act of that story is the New Testament. Right. Um, if you're trying to find mutual understanding about the role of Jesus in a salvation story between two religions. Kind of feel like in 80 years, you might have thought to have a conversation about whether you're even understanding salvation in the same way, mm -hmm. right? Um, likewise, most church documents some um, seem to think that the not just primary but sole text that is of religious relevance to Jews is the Hebrew Bible. 
the Talmud doesn't, which is a fairly significant body of post-Jewish, post-biblical Jewish religious thought and reflection on the meaning of the Hebrew Bible in kind of the same way that we can read the New Testament as Christian commentary and reflection on the meaning of the Old Testament, is only mentioned, I think, in one footnote to one fairly recent document from the Vatican, and that's a kind of proof texty footnote, not a, oh, wait, there's this entire body of text that we've never talked about. So 80 years on, there's still some actually fairly basic technical things about how Judaism works that aren't being properly reflected in these documents, which suggests to me that these documents are still being written largely by committees in which these points haven't been properly understood. Which brings me back to that question I started with, which is why on, what on earth have we been doing mm. all this time? Right. And, and this is where I come to the point that I started off making about the asymmetrical power relationship, because in these dialogue spaces, on the one hand, it is Christian churches that have the problem, mm -hmm. right? Um, Judy, if we were going to try to articulate a Jewish theology of religions, um, it, it might sound something like, um, well, we don't worship other gods and we also don't get too energized about other people's business. Mm -hmm. right? Other religions are not really things that keep Judaism, you know, Jewish thinkers up terribly late at night because Judaism is not really, at least in my reading, a totalizing universal religious system. It is a particularist system. Okay. Judaism is a problem for Christianity. Therefore, the driving force in this dialogue process is churches, church groups are the ones making invitations to Jewish speakers to come. Church groups are the ones very often setting the questions. And those questions are, I, in 15 years I've been doing this work, I have never gotten an invitation from a group saying, would you please come and just tell us what you think we should know? It's always, we would like you to come and talk to us about Jewish views of hope. 
Jewish views of redemption, Jewish views of salvation. You know, the terms of the conversation are always already set mm -hmm. in language that makes perfect sense to the people issuing the invitation and requires the person responding to it to be a good guest by taking upon themselves the burden of translation. Right. And, and so we end up with a dialogue process that 80 years on um, yields this trove of documents in which no one has even noticed that there are not one shared text, but two very different texts at yeah. the center of well, the conversation. And I kind of see you as somebody who is, you can play a role within like the middle of that and evening out that conversation. Um, and I kind of feel like that's the, like, that's a future goal of yours that you're kind of working your way into. Does that make any sense? Like with your collaboration with like sacred rights and stuff about trying to like, um, even out the conversation a little bit more like purposefully? Yeah, no, I think my, the way I am seeing my role is I, I am starting I've been doing this long enough that I'm starting to become comfortable being the person who says the uncomfortable thing. Mm -hmm. Sure. Such as um, that there are in fact two different texts and mm -hmm. we've only been talking about one of them. I, I'm curious about how this is going to play out mm -hmm. because of course, saying the uncomfortable thing when you're a guest is the sort of thing that makes you maybe not be the top of the list to be invited back. There's that. There's also the fact that I am not ordained. Mm -hmm. I am not a rabbi. I, I am not someone who was raised in an orthodox home from childhood, far from it. I'm an academic who knows a lot of stuff about Judaism and knows a lot of stuff about dialogue. I am potentially dismissible, mm -hmm. right? I'm the Archbishop of Canterbury is not going to ring me up anytime in this lifetime. Um, and the chief rabbi's office is probably not. No. So the place that I can make an impact in this process is never going to be at that high level. Sure. It is going to be at an academic level, um, you know, highlighting from, you know, using my historian skill set to do things like this documentary history and highlight where things seem to be going wrong and at a public education level um, for, for as long as local church groups are willing to keep inviting me um, and 
local schools and community groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds like that might be like uh, something you've been working on for a long time as far as teaching. And I've, I love that you go and work with school groups because as a teacher, I love having people come in as guest speakers to my own classroom as well. Uh, are that, is that like something that you enjoy doing is working with curriculum and younger students to help begin these conversations from an earlier age. So maybe we can possibly have teeny tiny incremental progress along the way. Does that sort of resonate with some of your goals? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think so I'm feeling like, and I've been feeling while I've been talking like I'm being in a way unfair to the dialogue process, because of course, the other thing that we should mention that I should have mentioned at the beginning is churches are prone to inertia. The pace of change is right. glacial. Yeah. And I do understand that, right? It is not reasonable to expect the pace of change to be as rapid as it was between mm-hmm. the Holocaust and the Second Vatican Council. Um, so I my, my critique is just that it still could have been a little bit faster. Change happens very often from the ground up. Church documents will change when the understanding of a critical mass of church members has sufficiently changed. And we do this precisely through education, precisely through curricular development, so that you know, if we are, for example, properly talking about Judaism in primary schools, we start off by presenting Judaism as a religious tradition in its own right. It's a move a lot of primary school teachers like to make to say, Judaism is the religion Jesus practiced because that links it to something that kids already know. Right. Um, The problem is that then goes into kids' heads as Judaism is proto-Christianity, which is where a lot of the problems I'm seeing um, being worked out in current dialogue movements are coming from. When we can have that conversation with older kids in a more robust way and with older kids, Honestly, secondary school is probably the appropriate time to be starting to talk about, say, the differences between the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament. If you're teaching any approach to Judaism that includes sacred text, that's that's a good time to start making that point so that those kids in secondary school don't grow up and get ordained and end up sitting in a room with me where I'm the person telling them this for the first time in their lives. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, because then because then you have so much unlearning to do that it feels like you're being attacked instead exactly. of instead of learning. Instead of learning, so I I spend a lot of time doing school outreach work to make sure that there is at least you know some chance for those conversations to start early gotcha um are you working on any like scholarship and writing and anything like that for like a sort of a general audience to like sort of see how far you can branch out publication wise right now I'm not, I'm afraid. Um, Right now, I've got a few other plates spinning in the air. Um, I I, I had this good news, bad news moment um, back in 2020 when I and a colleague of mine in theater studies at Manchester met. had the right idea at the right time and got funding to do a project on changes to British religious ritual during COVID lockdown. And that became all consuming for me over the last year and is continuing to be a thing that I'm spending a lot of my time on that that's been actually a really great project from a dialogue perspective because a lot of the religious bodies that were happy to partner with us ended up being dialogue organizations and they because covid response has been such a practical problem mm-hmm. It's been a great moment where religious practitioners have been able to sit down and talk to each other about common problems. And this is another dialogue theory thing. The hope is always that if you can build strong relationships around something that's not religious difference, you can eventually have better conversations on the sticky points about religious difference. Um, And that project has also delayed me writing the last chapter of the monograph that I um, just need to write the last chapter of. Nice. Which is, I'm hoping will be at least somewhat attractive to a general audience because it's going to be, problems in post-genocide reconciliation and I do think of Jewish Christian dialogue as an example of a post-genocide reconciliation program that has evident problems but I'm framing this through popular culture through um, superhero films and comic books as models of idealized you know, how post-genocide reconciliation is supposed to work or just does work and people don't think about where the problems might emerge. 
Gotcha. Well, um, I'm wondering if, um, you know, if people wanted to follow your current and future projects, where they might be able to do so if they want to see what you get up to in, in the several different fields that you are currently engaged in. Well, I am on Twitter as Prof AMV, and I do also have a personal website, alanamvincent.net, um, that I, I won't say it is constantly updated, but I usually manage to you know, bring it up to date about once a term. Excellent. Well, Dr. Alana Vincent, I have learned so many things um, about your, your work and the current state of Jewish-Christian dialogue in the world, but also what we as teachers at my grade levels can do to create incremental small changes uh, with the students that we see in our classrooms on a day-to-day -day basis, because that is so important, the work that people do in their own classrooms every single day in you know, making our future a little bit brighter in the ways that we possibly can. So I appreciate your, your advice on that. So thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas and hanging out with me and teaching me so much. My pleasure. Thank you.